rules. What are, now that's, that's, this is rhetorical, okay? We're not asking for responses, but, but what are your house rules? Every home has them. Every home has them. And when these behavioral expectations are clearly communicated, it provides order and security for all who live under that roof. If everybody knows what the house rules are, if everybody knows what, what kind of behavior is expected, especially children, if they know what kind of behavior is expected and there's consistency in that, it provides security, uh, it provides order within that house. And, and was, as I was preparing the message and just doing some research, I ran across a list uh, from a secular website which basically was talking about, here. if you don't know where to start, here's some suggestions. And so let me, I'm, we're not going to comment on it, I just want to quickly go through the list. Uh, in this, there, there, there were uh, uh, these eight, I think, eight things mentioned here. And basically, first was, in no particular order, treat people and, prop- uh, treat people and property with respect. Knock on closed doors before entering. Pick up after yourself. Maintain an electronics curfew. That everybody, not just the kids, but at everybody at a certain time at night, everything shuts down. Everything shuts down. Make amends when you hurt somebody. Tell the truth. Practice good dental and body hygiene. Attend family meetings. Now, while I think most of us would probably agree that this list is profitable, uh, it's a profitable list, we would also reorient several of them with a Christian ethic or a Christian worldview. I mean, there's nothing, I mean, practicing good dental and body hygiene is good for everybody, you know. I don't think we have to, uh, we we might take a a Christian uh, worldview behind it, but but that's just a good thing to do. That's just a good thing to do. Uh, And and, and a list like this, I think, should also help us realize a couple things that are true about our culture and just about any culture. The culture at large realizes that the key to a healthy society is by means of, a, of household rules that promote, promote order, safety, and security. As goes the home, so goes the nation. I think that's something that, 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 that a list like this, that is not written by believers, uh, a list like this is, is something that, that, that they recognize this. If we're going to have an orderly society, then it begins by having order within the home. But also, a list like this helps us realize that as believers... These household codes must be sifted through a Christian, biblical worldview with discerning acceptance and discerning rejection. Some of these things we would accept and say, Amen, that's great. Some of these things we should reject uh, and say, You know what, there there needs to be added some things more to this or this thing needs to be looked at in a different way and in a different fashion. And you say, Well, why are you saying all this? Because this is exactly... This is exactly what Peter is doing in the verses that we read this morning. This is exactly what he's doing in these verses. He answers the question, how do believers live out their new life in Christ within the existing social structure? Now again, remember, this is a group of people who have been been forcibly removed. I'm, I'm getting some ringing, guys, when... I'm hearing, hearing myself. Uh, thank you. Uh, the, the, they're being forcibly removed. They were forcibly removed from their homes. They were expelled out of Rome. They've been taken to Asia Minor. They are in a strange land. 
they are separated. They separated them as believers. Uh, they no longer are able to meet together like they used to. They have got to start all over financially. They've got to start all over where they live. It's a group of people that have been placed in a, a, a social structure that is foreign to them, a social structure that is new to them, and they're also now facing uh, beginning, uh, the, the beginnings of governmental persecution uh, for being believers. They're beginning to experience that. And so Peter is letting them know here just how do you live out your faith in a way that still maintains social order, that, is, that, is, that, it, that benefits the social structure. And this question, by the way, is relevant for every generation of every age. Every generation of every age in every culture. How do we answer this question? How are we going to go about and answer this question? How, how are we to live our lives in a way that not only is discerning about the, the society in which we live, but also we are affirming and an asset to the society in which we live? How do we do that? Well, let's again, that's why this morning we're going to begin by giving some things, kind of like tearing away some underbrush, planting some trees of understanding, so that as we get into these scriptures, we do so without some of the baggage that we might carry into it. Well, we begin by addressing 21st century distortions. Anytime you read your Bible, anytime you study your Bible, one of the things that we have to remember is this is that we cannot take 21st century understandings and 21st century values and 21st century way of thinking and transport that into into the scriptures which was written in the first century. We've got to be careful that we don't do that. We, we read something and we read it. I mean, again, it's like I've heard people say, history begins whenever, I, whenever you were born. Uh, you know, that's, it's kind of, we, we kind of view life through the, through the time frame that we lived in. And we forget about all the history, the, the thousands of years of history that exist in the past. And if we're not careful, we can miss out or misunderstand or completely reject this passage of Scripture simply because we're reading 21st century, or taking our 21st century understanding and transporting it back into the 1st century. And there's two issues that we have to address. And the first has to deal with slavery. Because this text begins by saying this, Servants, or literally doulas, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. We err. We make a huge mistake if we make the atrocities and evils of institutional slavery in America the template for understanding this text. If we go back to the atrocities and evils that occurred in our country during the time when slavery was practiced and promoted, we will look at this text and we will have a very, very hard time dealing with this text. Because this text has nothing to do with American slavery. It has nothing to do with the atrocities that occurred in our country. And, and I, I, I want to help us by, by looking at the difference between ancient slavery, which was taking place at this time, and American slavery. First of all, ancient slavery was based in... I'm sorry, American slavery was based in human trafficking. People were kidnapped. People were sold so that they could take... Uh, you had the middleman, and, and then that person sold individuals into slavery. It was human trafficking. 
The same that we find today uh, is sex trafficking that takes place, the human trafficking that takes place. Not too long ago, not around here, we had a bust of human trafficking where people were brought in and basically made to labor and, and to work in such a way that they were laboring and working in such a way that it was, it was oppressive conditions. But that was, that, that's, that's the basis of American slavery. It was in human trafficking. While ancient slavery was entered into generally as a consequence of defeat and war. As the Roman Empire would expand its territory as they would go into an area, if they came into Kennedale, Texas, and, 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 and took control of it, every citizen then of Kennedale would become a slave of the Roman Empire. You'd become a slave. Not because you were bought in order to be sold, but you, just because of the fact that, that, that your, your city had just been overcome by the Roman Empire automatically made you a slave. So that's one difference. The second difference is this. American slavery, slavery was grounded in perceived racial, inferior, uh, racial uh, inferiority. In other words, that the African race, uh, that they were inferior just simply because of the color of their skin. The color of their skin determined whether or not you were inferior or superior. And we still have people that think that way. That stupid people, I shouldn't say very so stupid, misinformed people that, that still think that way today. Uh, and that's the idea of American slavery, uh, that somehow because the color of your skin determines whether or not you are inferior to somebody else based upon the color of their skin, whereas ancient slavery was grounded in the vanquishing of a civilization. Uh, the civilization was uh, that Kennedale, Texas no longer exists. It's now, part, it's now a province of the Roman Empire. And that's how one entered into slavery. That was, that was the, the, the grounds behind it. American slavery treated those enslaved in subhuman ways. In subhuman ways. In beatings, in families being separated, in rapes, uh, in molestations. They were treated in subhuman ways. While ancient slaves could be better off than people who were free. An ancient slave could be a doctor, an ancient slave could be a, 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 a politician, an ancient slave could be. A soldier, an ancient slave could be wealthy. An ancient slave, ancient slavery, you had an opportunity to, to improve yourself, to enhance yourself, uh, to be a, a teacher, uh, all kinds of things with ancient slavery. Uh, the, the final difference that we'll look at is this, is that American slavery did not offer a way out. Enslavement was an indefinite condition. There was no way out. You were a slave. Your kids would be a slave. Your grandkids would be a slave. Unless the master chose to release you, you were a slave. That was your life. That would be the life of your children. That would be the life of your grandchildren. And so forth, and so forth, and so forth. While ancient slavery was not a permanent condition, there was a way out. Slavery was something that you could, you could get out of. You could either purchase your way out of it. Or, if you were a Roman soldier, and, and, and as Rome would conquer different territories, uh, once they began to say, okay, we want to bring the Roman, Greco-Roman culture into this area, and they would tell soldiers, if you'll stay, if you'll stay, we'll give you property, we'll also release you from taxes, that, that's, that's, that's a good enough reason right there, and it will release you from taxes, and you will be free. You'll no longer be a slave. 
And so oftentimes many of the Roman soldiers, they decided to do that. They, they would stay in that area so that the Greco-Roman culture could be spread in that area and they would become free. Uh, they would no longer be subject to taxes and they, could also, uh, they would also be given land. That was something that, that, that couldn't happen in, ancient, in American slavery. That couldn't happen in American slavery. Now, let me say this. Ancient slavery, we're not painting ancient slavery as some kind of utopia. Ancient slavery had its share of inhumane and abusive treatment. Ancient slavery could be very inhumane. Ancient slavery could be very uh, 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 abusive. But one cannot read American slavery into the text without distorting and struggling with its meaning and application. If we take our experience of, 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 the, of the dreadfulness uh, uh, and the atrocities of what slavery was like in our country and we try to read that and say, this is what God expected of them, we're going to miss the boat. We're going we're to say, Whoa, wait a second, there's something wrong with the scriptures here. If we take that and, and transport our understanding of slavery to this passage of scripture, we are, we are not going to be able to understand what Peter is trying to get across here and what God is trying to get across to us. So that's the first 21st century thing that we've got to, to, to use the modern culture, deconstruct, okay? As we've got to deconstruct that. The other thing that we have to understand is privatization. Privatization. Our 21st century idea of privacy means that whatever occurs within the home is nobody else's business. It's my home. And we have physical reminders of that. Privacy fences. When I was a kid, that didn't exist. You had chain link fences. You could walk out in your backyard and see your neighbor in the backyard and talk to him. How you doing? We had, we had chain link fences. But privacy fences, why do we put private? Why do they even call them privacy fences? <laughs> why? And I'm not saying it's sin. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's a sin to have a privacy fence. My backyard has a privacy fence, okay? I'm not saying that. But we call it a privacy fence <laughs> for a reason. Because what goes on in my home and in my yard is my business and none of your business. We've got it now set up to when you go home, and I do the same thing. I go home, and right before I get, uh, right about halfway down the street, I press my little garage door opener, and guess what? That garage goes bloop and goes up. And then I pull in, and right as I pass the little, the, the little uh, uh, laser that goes across there, I hit it again, and guess what? Bloop, it goes down. And I can go straight from work to my car to my home and not encounter anybody. Not encounter anybody. You know, think, I was thinking about this as I was preparing the message. You know, if you ever watch the Andy Griffith show, where do you find him at night? On the front porch. On the front porch. Playing the guitar, singing, greeting people as they walk by. Homes used to have front porches. Now, we still call them front porches, but basically it's just an entryway, you know. It's, it's just to get us in the house because nobody... I mean, really, think about it. When was the last time you got into your home through your front door? You know? That, that doesn't, I'm not saying it doesn't, but it, it, if you've got a garage, you probably get inside your home through the garage. You probably don't even remember the last time you went through the front door, if you've got a garage. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know, whatever. But there used to be front porches. 
and people sat out on the front, and they spoke with people as they walked by. Even the way, even the way physically our lives are set up says this. When I get behind these doors and walls, don't bother me. I'm home. Don't bother me. Uh, we used to know our neighbors. Not anymore. I can still remember. I can still remember the neighbors next back when we lived on Kings Highway, and I think we moved from there when I was about six or seven years old. So this has been well over fifty years ago. It was the Copelands, the Copelands, and I believe their son's name was Ronnie. Played with Ronnie Copeland, and across the street were the Boers. Sharon, uh, Sharon was the girl. Sharon Boer, I remember her. And then up a couple streets were the Altops. And then back there, then Belinda lived, I kind of sweet on Belinda. And, you know, Belinda lived a couple, you know, across the street, but a couple, a couple houses up. Belinda and I would always, and, and, gosh, why am I, I don't need to go on this, but we'd always compete in math. She's really good in math. And so we had a thing in school where the teacher would give a math problem, and then when you got it, you went up, the boys got on one side, the girls got on one side, and the first one up got to see if they got it right. And if, you, if they got it right, then the boys got a point, then the girls got a point. Me and Belinda were always, always going back and forth on that. All that, just, gosh, I don't know why I got off on that. Just one of those senior things. But, but anyhow, th- th- we used to know our neighbors, okay? We used to know our neighbors. And these actions scream this. Mind your own business. What goes on in my home is my business. If we take that understanding into this text, we're going to miss out on what Peter's wanting to say to us. Because in the first century, behavior in the home was perceived very much as society's business. It was one's duty to behave in the manner appropriate to their role within the home. In fact, not to accept and fulfill your duty was deemed as a subversive act of treason. If you did not accept and fulfill your role in the home, Society considered that a subversive act of treason because you are destabilizing it. An ordered household meant an ordered society. And an ordered society resulted in the supreme good of that society. Peter does not deny this premise. He doesn't deny this premise. Rather, he wants to put forth a superior household code because of one's new relationship with Christ. Peter does not deny the fact that what happens in the home has an effect upon society. And that if we are going to, if we are going to be people who, bring in, who, who enhance our society, then what happens in the home is important. What happens in our relationships is important. Peter does not deny that premise. But what he does say is the fact that we need to take whatever role that is and sift it through a Christian worldview and be able to fulfill that role, not according to the norms of the culture, but according to the norms of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we do that, we are an asset to whatever society we live in. How does Peter do that? Well, contrary to the thinking of the prevailing culture, living with a Christian worldview does not impede a society. It enhances it. It enhances social order. And that, that, that attitude still exists today. That if you're a Christian, you are impeding society. 
If you're a Christian, you are bringing society down. Whereas the truth actually is, if we live out our lives the way Scripture teaches us to live out our lives, we are actually enhancing the social order. We are enhancing the social order. And again, how? Well, Peter addresses the question by confronting first century expectations. So, if we're going to understand this text correctly, first of all, we've got to, we've got to kind of take the, uh, you know, take, take the, uh, the, the brush hog and get out there and get all the underbrush, take our first century, our, I'm sorry, our 21st century ideas and make sure we don't carry those over. But we also need to understand the first century and the expectations of what's going on. We use the word influencers a lot today. I was looking at an article this morning, and it said mom influencer and so-and-so. I mean, for some reason, that just, I mean, that term just drives me nuts. I mean, it probably shouldn't, but it does. You know, we're we're TikToking, and we're we're tweeting, you know, and we're doing all that stuff, and, you know, I'm an influencer. I'm a social influencer. I'm a mom influencer. Uh, You know, I'm a teenage influencer. Well, we, we think that that's cool. You know, that terminology is cool and exciting, but that's been around forever. Because when you study this, this text and you look at the history, there were a group of influencers in that day. Some of them lived a couple centuries before this. But Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, and Seneca, they were the social influencers of that day. Now, Plato didn't tweet. You know, and Plato didn't TikTok. You know, and Plato didn't post something on Facebook or Instagram. But he was just as much an influencer as all these that are around there today. If they lived in our day, they would be they would be the ones that were TikToking and you know and all that other stuff. These men were the social influences influencers of their day, regarding the moral underpinnings of proper household relationships in the first century. This is how people formed their lives. This is what Plato said. This is what Aristotle said. This is what Plutarch said. This is what Seneca said. And they would take what they said, their philosophy, this Greco philosophy, this Greco-Roman philosophy, and this is how they live their lives. This is the kind of, this is, this is the, the life situation that these believers were living in. And just as there were two 21st century issues and distortions that we had to look at, there are two first century expectations that Peter is going to address in this text. The first has to do with moral authority. Moral authority. Both slaves and wives in this culture were not considered free moral agents. Both slaves and wives were not considered free moral agents. You say, what do you mean by this? Slaves were, not, were, were considered incapable of determinative thinking. In other words, a, sla- a slave just simply did not have the mind to make, the, make decisions. They couldn't decide. You've got to decide for them. They're not smart enough to figure things out. After all, they come from this other civilization. They're not part. They're, 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 they've been conquered. They're conquered peoples. And, and, and they just are not capable of looking at a situation, looking at a problem, and coming up with the proper solution that fits our Roman and our, 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 our Greco-Roman culture. They're, they're, they're incapable of doing that. Wives had the capacity to do so in this, in, this, in this philosophy, but they lacked the authority. In other words, thinking for a woman was a waste of time. You might be able to do it, 
but why wish? It's something like you might have heard somebody say back in the 50s. Don't let your pretty little head think about that. Don't, 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 don't let your pretty little head waste your time on this. Daddy will figure it out. You know? That's kind of the idea here. It is the fact that women certainly were capable of determinative thinking, but it was a waste of time for them to do so because they had no authority. None whatsoever. Again, this is what's going on in this time. Peter addresses both slaves and wives in a way, and when we get to the text, we'll show you how he addresses them. Peter addresses both slaves and wives in a way that assumes a moral authority beyond the social expectations of the first century in which they lived. In other words, when Peter addresses them, he is, he is uplifting their dignity and worth. They are responsible people who have the ability to make moral decisions. To make moral decisions. They are capable and, again, again they have the authority to make moral decisions. Their husband doesn't have to tell them everything. They, 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 they can think through and know what's the right thing and what's the wrong thing. That's, what, that's part of what's going on here. That's part of what's taking place here. And Peter is going to take that, and he's, he, he is lifting up both slaves and women to the place, a place of dignity and authority. You have a moral responsibility before God to make sure you make the right decisions within the framework that Scripture sets up. Second, the second issue had to deal with worship. If we're going to understand some of the things that Peter says here, we have to understand what's going on. The first thing is this. Slaves had to worship their master's God. You, you become a believer in Christ. You're a household slave. You still got to worship the master's God, according to the master. You are expected to worship the household God, according to the master. A slave's loyalty to his master's God assured economic stability. If you were to worship another god besides your master, then that meant the gods might get angry at that master because that master is not ordering his home well, and that could mean the gods become angry, and because the gods become angry, their crops, their livestock, and their way of living is going to diminish and deteriorate because the slaves... Are, even though they're still doing the work that has been required of them, they are rebelling because they are, they, are, they, are, they are no longer worshiping the master's gods. That helps us to understand what's going on here, what's taking place here, and, and some of the instruction that Peter is going to give them. In fact, in the Roman Empire, any religion, any religion that taught equality of worship for a slave would be opposed vigorously. And Christianity did that. Christianity did that. And part of why Christianity was becoming more and more opposed in that time was because slaves were instructed that they no longer had to worship their master's God. Not only were they instructed, but because they were worshiping the true God, they know to worship any other God was idolatry. So how does Peter address that? How, how, if somebody came to you, you put in that situation and said, 
what do I do? If I, if I don't worship my master's gods, he beats me. What do I do? If I do worship my master's gods, I'm not really doing it. I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean I'm, just, I'm just going through the motions, but I, I'm, I'm worshiping God. when I, I'm thinking about God when I do this. What do I do? What do I do? And that's part of what Peter's addressing in this passage of Scripture. The second thing, wives must worship their husbands' gods. Now think about it. You're married. As a woman, you come to Christ. But your husband doesn't. Your husband doesn't. You're still expected by that husband. He might not have any problem with you saying, Hey, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. He might not have any problem with that as long as you continue to worship his gods. In fact, one implication of this belief meant that a wife could not have friends outside of her husband's friends. The wife's friends were the husband's friends. She wasn't allowed to have any friends outside of that. And so when a wife became a believer, she could be considered rebellious and a threat to the social order for not worshiping her husband's gods as well as having friends in the Christian community. How many testimonies did we hear from women today that talked about how much they appreciate this church and the fellowship that they have? If their husbands were unbelievers and their husbands found out about that, no, 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 no. You better cut off those friendships. You better cut off those friendships. That is what is helping to shape our understanding and what Peter's talking about in this passage of Scripture. And the last thing that he talked about, we read about slaves, we read about wives, and then there's just one verse on husbands. And you ladies are probably thinking, man, that, that's chintzy. You know, you've got verses 1 through 6 about us wives, and he only gives one verse to the husband. And we all know that if, uh, of the two, the husband is one that needs a whole lot more work than the wife does, you know? Why just this one stinking verse on the husband? Because of what is being talked about in this passage of Scripture. What Peter is referring to. What about a husband coming to faith, having an unbelieving wife? Now this one gets really exciting here. Society would expect her to worship her husband's God. So let's just take Lisa and I. I come to faith, she's not a believer. We live in that culture. That culture still expects her. She needs to start worshiping Jesus Christ. Because I'm worshiping Jesus Christ. But think about it. How was Christianity viewed at that time? There's something wrong. You really worship just one God? You really worship a, a, a man from Nazareth? You're involved in that sect? I mean, again... It's kind of like it is in our country right now. You want to be considered an oddball? State the fact that you worship the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's not the majority anymore. So now think about that. So this woman, this unbelieving wife, would be resentful towards her husband because he is, he, she now is socially expected to worship a God who is deemed by the culture as being a 
fringe religion. A fringe religion. She's de- she's been demeaned by her husband's strange faith. So she rebels. So I'm not going to do it. If you want to worship Jesus Christ, that's up to you. But I'm not going to. And you can't make me. Well, if that was the case, her rebellion against Christianity would diminish her husband's status in society. You can't maintain your own home. You can't get your woman in line. She should be she should be worshiping your God. If your God is who your God who you think your God is, but she's not going to because she resents being associated with this strange sect. And because she rebels, her husband is viewed as somebody that can't control his own home. So, how could this new believer fulfill his duty as head of his household while respecting his unbelieving wife? Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. That helps us to understand not only what's going on, but it helps us to understand and apply it in our 21st century culture. And as we're going to see over the course of the next several weeks, these social expectations are transformed in and through Jesus Christ. For he says in verse 21 of chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, I know this is not the usual fare that we look at when we come into this place Sunday after Sunday. So why even spend time here today? Well, it should be remind us that we have not been called to deconstruct our society. We're not here to make society in our likeness, to make society into the likeness of Scripture. Whether, rather, we are to enhance society by fulfilling our societal roles, not according to its norms, but by following Christ's norms. By following Christ's norms. How do we fulfill our societal... We, again, we don't have the kind of slavery that is being talked about here. So oftentimes this is applied in an employer-employee kind of way, and we'll talk more about that when we look at the text. But how do we apply that in our lives? What's what's the teaching for us? How, How do we fulfill our roles in our jobs? How do we fulfill our roles in this society with a Christian worldview and by doing so, we enhance culture. How do, we, how, how, do, how do women fulfill their roles according to the norms of Christ? Not according to the norms of culture, but according to the norms of Christ. How do husbands, how do men fulfill their roles? Not according to the, to the norms of society, but according to the norms of Christ. And we are to be, not only are we to live our lives as good believers, we are to live our lives in such a way that society 
is enhanced. That society is enhanced. The house rules taught by Peter in this text explains how. It helps us to understand our societal role. It helps us to determine if we're following Scripture's house rules to make society better. Now, we have to take the gospel to people. This is not about a social gospel. We have to take the gospel to people. We are to live transformed lives. But too many times, and, and, and I think one of, the, one of the big battles between liberalism and fundamentalism in the, in the 1900s was what, what, what role do Christians play within the culture? What role do Christians play within society? And one of the mistakes, in my opinion, that fundamentalism made was the fact that they said, listen, what we need to be concerned about is getting the gospel to people. Because you can feed them, you can clothe them, you can take care of them, but if they don't hear about Christ, they, 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 just, go, they just die and go to hell with a, with, a, with a fuller belly, with nicer clothes, and you know, with, with a better lifestyle. And so they just chucked that whole thing. And, and, and they thought it was an either-or situation. And it's not an either-or situation, it's a both-and. We need to tell people about Christ. The difference, the, the, what makes a difference in a person's life is whether or not they have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. That enables us to, that, that's what enables us not only to glorify God, but it also enables us to be good stewards of the fact that God has placed us on this globe, in this particular place, at this point in time, so that we can be not only an example of what Christ-likeness is at, but that we can we can seek the welfare of the place in which we live. We read that the last time, a, a couple weeks ago. When, when Jeremiah says, go, go to Babylon, you're, you're captured, you are, you are slaves in Babylon, but you go there and you seek the welfare of that city. You seek the welfare of that city. And as we do that, it enables us to speak with an even clearer voice to those around us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to be concerned about our four and no more. We have been called to be salt and light to the world. We are a city that has been set on a hill, and a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Cannot be hidden. We're not to take our light and put it under a basket, but we're to put it on a lampstand so that all in the house are able to see. And in like manner, we're to let our light shine before the world, that they can see our good deeds and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Glorify our Father which is in heaven. We want to have good homes, not just so we can walk in obedience to God, not so that, that we can train our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We want to have good homes so that we can enhance the society in which we live. Because when Christians are practicing Christianity the way that it should, we become good citizens. We become good neighbors. We become good employees. We become good whatever wants to be placed after that. And that's, that's what God has called us to do not emphasizing one or uh, not ignoring one for the other but doing both doing both so that our lives can make a difference in this world and may God grant us the wisdom to do so 
That's why the mission field. That's why every day you go to work, it's a mission field. Every day, the block on which you live on is a mission field. The encounters which we have is a mission field. And we're training our children so that they can be grounded in the faith, so that they can go out and be salt and light to a world that desperately, desperately, desperately needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a task that God has given us to do. What a privilege that God has given us to do. That is something as, as, as mundane and as, as pedestrian as just being a good neighbor and a good citizen and an asset to society can have eternal blessings and value. What a privilege. What a privilege. May God help us to do so. And may God give us ears to hear as we begin to dive into this text these next several weeks and understanding what it means, what it means to be the kind of people that make the places where we live better place. Why is it a better place? Because Jesus Christ's image and Jesus Christ's character is being lived out. It's being lived out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the challenge and the blessing that you've laid before us. Lord, we ask that you would help us Help us to understand this passage. A lot of times this passage, these passages are avoided because they can be difficult to understand. They can be abused. They can be watered down. And so, Lord, help us to, again, pray that, that they are accurately handled over the course of the next several weeks. And help us, Lord, in understanding and and the things that we, the groundwork that was laid today. Help us, Father, to, to tear out those things that, that, that would, would uh, distort our understanding. And, and Lord, help us to, to recognize what Peter is trying to do and how he's trying to, uh, to uh, bring dignity and, and worth and value and, and, and the importance, Lord, that we have to view our, our, our role in society Lord, through the lens of, of, of Christianity in particular, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, it begins by knowing you. Not by going to church, not by being baptized, not by trying to, to live a moral life. It begins by having a personal relationship with you. Where we recognize that because of our sin, we are condemned, we are damned, we're doomed. We have nothing to offer you. Nothing to bring before you that, that you're pleased with. We are sinners by birth. We are sinners by choice. Sin has twisted every aspect of our being. And we were hopeless. We were hopeless. But because of your love for us as we celebrate this Advent season, that because of your love for humanity, you, you sent your Son. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came and added to Himself human flesh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, 
and lived a life of sinless perfection. And the God-man, not half God, not half man, but all God and all man, yet without sin, lived a life that we could never live and offered up His perfect obedience as a sacrifice for my sins and the sins of everyone sitting here today. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see our need and for those that don't know Christ to put their faith and trust in Him today because He and He alone is their only hope. And for those of us who are believers, Father, I pray that you'd help us to realize the responsibility that we have. Responsibility that goes beyond our family. Responsibility that goes beyond our church but the responsibility we have to society in general. Lord, we just ask that you give us your wisdom and we're thankful for your work of grace in our lives. Pray your blessings now upon the remainder of our time together. May you use it for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, as you know, we don't have an altar call, but we do have an invitation. If you don't know Christ today and you're still not sure about some things, we would love to talk with you after the services. Just indicate and we'll take, a, take the time, and whether it's a day or whether it's weeks or whether it's months, so that you can come.